Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. It's going to be a solo show today. My co-host, Amy, will be joining us later on in the week for the B-side. And if you're not a patron of the show already, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe for at least $5 or more per month, and you too will get access to our second show each week, which we call the B-side for those of you who are not quite initiated. Got a really great episode this week. Joining us for the A-Side are two DSA activists in the city of New York. I've got Susan Kang and Michael Cavadias joining us in just a moment for an interview. We're going to be talking about the endorsement process of Cynthia Nixon, who is running for the gubernatorial Democratic primary race in uh, New York State. It's certainly been a contentious process, and it has brought up a number of key questions for socialist groups and organizations across the country and even across the world. Some of the key uh, debates center around the notion of authenticity. Is Cynthia Nixon or other candidates at stake in these debates? Are they real socialists? Is that the measure of an endorsement? Should a socialist organization only endorse candidates that can be deemed to be authentic democratic socialists? And is Cynthia Nixon indeed a democratic socialist or not? My guests will address these issues and much, much more surrounding the notion of accountability. Another objection, I think, which is very reasonable that has cropped up during this debate is the question of accountability. If indeed DSA or other organizations are to endorse these candidates for electoral office, how should we hold them accountable and what are the means at our disposal to do so? These are all a number of really key questions. And although this debate has been settled via a democratic process, and Cynthia Nixon has indeed been endorsed by that chapter. I think those questions are far from settled. And so I want to approach this topic furthermore in much more detail as we do on Dead Pundit Society by inviting on two of the members who were instrumental in fighting for that endorsement process in New York City. So without further ado, I'll bring you the interview. It's going to be a B-side. As I said, Amy will be joining us later on in the week. We'll be breaking down more of these topics, talking about the different kinds of endorsements, the notion of accountability, the role of socialist organizations and electoral politics, and much more. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and support the New Left Agenda to keep this project up and running. Thanks, as always, to my current and past patrons. We love you all. We definitely could not do this without you. So without further ado, here is my interview with NYC DSA members. Enjoy. to identify as a democratic socialist. I hadn't called myself a democratic socialist before, but I realized that my values and what I'm fighting for are directly aligned with that movement. So, if being a democratic socialist means believing that health care and housing and education should be a human right, then I am a democratic socialist. If it means standing up against inequality in all its forms and taking action to equalize wealth and power in our society, then I am a democratic socialist. 
establishment is terrified of that word, socialism. But if we learned one thing from the Obama years, it's that Republicans are going to call us socialists no matter what we do. So we might as well give them the real thing. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. It is we who plow. Joining us this week are Susan Kang and Michael Cavadias. They're both members of New York City DSA, and they're here to talk to us about the endorsement process that was just underway around uh, Cynthia Nixon and that campaign. How are both of you doing today? Really good. Well, how are you? I'm very good. I've uh, been really anxious to talk to some members of uh, New York City DSA about this process. It's been a somewhat contentious issue, uh, although it's, it's, it's definitely behind us. We want to sort of think through some of the key questions that were generated in this debate and try to come up with some more, um, I think, some more careful answers to some of these dilemmas, because they're certainly sure to crop up in future endorsement efforts that are going to come up across the country. So uh, rather than me sort of butchering the introductions here, Susan, why don't you tell uh, the listeners who you are and what you're involved with in DSA. Okay, cool. My name is Susan Kang, and I am an associate professor of political science at John Jay College, which is part of CUNY. And I've been a member of DSA since January of 2017. So I joined following Trump's inauguration, as many of us did. And I'm a member of the Queens branch of the NYC chapter. So we have a lot of branches because we're just so big. And uh, I'm a part of the citywide leadership committee, which is sort of the highest political body other than the citywide convention we have every year. And we make decisions about things like uh, policies and political endorsements. And in addition to this, I've uh, you know volunteered the best I can. I have two small children on uh, a number of other uh, electoral campaigns, including the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez campaign. And I have the privilege of also being a future constituent of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in addition to being someone who was able to volunteer for her through DSA. That's excellent. Quite a quite a record there. Excited to talk to you about this. And Michael Cavadias, you are also a member of the Citywide Leadership Council as well. Tell, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you're involved with in, in the New York City DSA. Sure. I am, um, I'm an actor and performer and a rent-stabilized tenant. So prior to DSA, I'd been involved in a lot of tenant organizing. And um, in DSA, I'm a member of the Lower Manhattan branch. I was on the organizing committee of the Lower Manhattan branch. And I am also on the, the Lower Manhattan Electoral OC. And I am on the Citywide Leadership Committee also with Susan. Excellent. Excellent. So it's, it's going to be a great conversation here. Uh, if folks don't know already, we sort of prefigured this in the intro, but uh, Cynthia Nixon has now officially been endorsed by NYC DSA, and it was a contentious process. It brought up a lot of uh, really important debates, uh, strategic uh, discussions, I think, that we really need to continue to have and, and not to sort of, you know, reprise any uh, hyper-emotional sort of um, <laughs> uh, overly contentious uh, aspects of this, uh, because I think they are both cert- those, those things are certainly behind us at this point. But I'd like to address some of the concerns uh, that have arisen since the endorsement, and we're going to do that now. So just by way of getting uh, the groundwork out of, out of the way here, 
Maybe, Susan, you can tell us a little bit about the recent electoral work that NYC DSA has undertaken. You know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has electrified um, not only DSA, but just the left in general, taking sort of this uh, democratic socialist word into the mainstream in a real, really serious way. So you were involved with the Ocasio-Cortez campaign from the beginning uh, when DSA got involved at the later stages of the game. Tell us a little bit about that process and what that endorsement looked like. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez started coming to DSA events probably about this time last year. Um, and I'd heard of her through social media and through the other electoral work I do outside of DSA. And as somebody who was a constituent of Joe Crowley, I was very excited to hear about her candidacy because forever people have been saying no one would ever challenge the king. Um, and I definitely wanted for DSA to get involved, but we were quite busy in 2017 working on Qadir Alia team, city council race in South Brooklyn, and then who was running in the Democratic primary. But he lost, but had a good showing. And then uh, we all came out for Jabari Brisport in central Brooklyn, who also did extremely well running for city council. But he ran on the Green Party line in the general election. He wasn't able to um, get a majority. But uh, nonetheless, I think word was spreading around New York City politics that DSA was the next grassroots organization to really take note of. Like, for example, a lot of the people who worked for these two campaigns went and got hired by like WFP or by the uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez campaign. So um, we'd already sort of started to make a name for ourselves without winning, right? Just by sort of doing a, a good job showing up and um, running respectable races. So the Queen's Electoral Working Group, of which I'm not a leadership uh, in a leadership position of, but I am a member, um, was looking for its own campaign. Like we were able to have our own volunteers go out to Brooklyn, but it's as you know, as you may know, the MTA is not so reliable and it can be over an hour and a half to get to certain yeah. parts of Brooklyn. So when I go, for example, to uh, Canada for Julia, it'll often take me half an hour and a half to get home Jeez. in the evenings. So um, we were looking for a local campaign close to home and uh, we thought about one particular state Senate race, but it was pretty clear that that particular candidate wasn't interested in working with the DSA because of concerns of like red baiting, but also that this particular candidate wasn't interested in being represented as a socialist, which is like, fine, like not everybody is a socialist. But then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign really expressed interest in working with us. And like I said, she'd come to like a picnic for Queens members and she'd gone to a number of meetings and without really an agenda or pushing anything or demanding time to talk, just sort of being present and listening and learning. And we'd seen her at a bunch of other community events in Queens that sort of the broader progressive coalitions had been present at. Um, and so we started talking about like, should we do this? And, you know, one of the first things that comes up is like, it's not a, a smart thing to do, right? We will never defeat Joe Crowley. We can't make a difference in this race. So the first things that pop up are all the reasons why we shouldn't do things. And a lot of people were like, oh, we support her you know, her candidacy, but we don't we don't think it's a good idea for DSA to get involved, right? It could be embarrassing. We could be targeted. So there was a lot of concern about whether or not this was a politically, um, whether that was just going to be like a humiliating thing to get involved in. And so it took a long time for us to endorse her. We didn't participate in any of the petitioning, which is probably the most significant part um, in the early parts of a campaign for a candidate in New York State to get involved in. So there's like a minimum number of petition signatures you're required to get. So for a congressional race in New York state, that's 1,250. So that's not that many, right? In a, especially in a district of, you know, 700,000 odd people. But because she was running against the machine, 
there was understanding that she couldn't just have 1250 signatures. Right. She'd have to have a lot more than that. They'd and be so challenged, right? You have certain exactly. uh, residency things that they need to be correlated with their, you know, what residency they sort of have listed in their voting registration. It's a nightmare. And if, right. You have to, and easily somebody with money can challenge every single signature and then you're like in court and it's a disaster, right? So they wanted to have a lot of signatures. And so those, you know, volunteers and organizations that got in on the ground for that petitioning, they're sort of like really the foundation of that campaign. And we didn't get involved then, right? Because we have this democratic process that involves more than one chap- uh, branch, right? So the Bronx, Upper Manhattan branch, as well as Queens. And then we had to take it to citywide leadership committee. And so it wasn't going to be smooth, whereas other organizations like, you know, Muslims for Progress were able to like think about it for a week and then get back to her. So if you, if anyone listened to the DIG podcast, I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talked about just how long of a process, and she didn't know how long of a process it would be. And it was very intense. And like most of the decisions we have, it was contentious. A lot of people were very much against. There had to be a lot of discussions, um, one-on-one discussions to get this going. And a lot of people had very principled stances against working with Alexandria because, you know, she only recently decided to call herself a democratic socialist, only recently became a member. But, you know, many of us as well, right? I only recently became a member. But there's a lot of concern that she was just doing this strategically. People didn't like her position on Israel, Palestine. They thought it wasn't strong enough, critical enough. Um, There were a lot of concerns. But ultimately, we were successful. I made the argument that the Queen's branch really wanted this campaign and that it was going to be a good way for us to do a couple things that we have faced as challenges. For example, you know, New York Congressional District 14 is probably one of the most diverse congressional districts in the country. And so for us to be able to knock on doors and canvas in these working class communities of color would help us to gain, um, you know, connections to communities that we're not as closely linked to. And it's totally worked, right? Because you can see how the people who show up to our meetings since then has diversified. And uh, that we, we democratically decided as a branch that this was a campaign we wanted. And so for people to have principled objections was fine. But then at the same time, we're the democratic socialists of America. So to block a democratic decision would really be, you know, hurting the vitality and the enthusiasm of our branch. And, you know, not everybody voted in support. Um, and I understand and respect those who had their reservations. But, you know, in the end, it went through and people hit the ground running like the next day with canvases. And, you know, as you know, once she got elected, despite the fact that she was supported by a huge coalition of grassroots groups, everybody in the media couldn't stop talking about the fact she was a socialist. So the fact that we were part of that process and that we were significant, and I know that people outside of Queens branch, people who couldn't travel to Queens, although I'd recommend everyone do that. We have the, we have the best food. Um, <laughs> you know, they did things like they ran phone banks um, or they participated in like text banking and they supported the campaign in other ways that they could. And I think it was really, in many ways, a branch-wide effort. And, you know, it was wonderful. And so that happened at the end of June. And I think at the end of June, <laughs> we were just very, we were so surprised, uh, so many of us, at not only the fact that she won, but she won by like a significant margin that it made us think that those of us who are electorally oriented, that perhaps, you know, we could continue on with this. Right. I mean, as I've said on the air, I can make as many uh, passionate pleas on my podcast or we can write as many articles as as we'd like to trying to argue for a certain kind of inside outside. So a democratic socialist strategy, you know, that that involves a certain kind of electoral strategic approach uh, for implementing non-reformist reforms in the pursuit of socialism. 
But, you know, the proof is in the pudding. And uh, Ocasio-Cortez's victory thus far has given us a, a far bigger shot in the arm than, than any of those uh, polemics uh, ever could have or whatever else. So, Michael, uh, tell us a little bit about how the Ocasio-Cortez changed or did not change, perhaps, the tone uh, in, inside the CLC, for example, or in, inside just the, the chapter or the broader organization. What's your read on the shift that's taken place since then? I mean, it, it's only been a couple of months now, not even, but it really does seem like there's been a sea change uh, inside the socialist movement in the United States. And people who were previously far more cynical of electoral politics have been forced to take that leg of the strategic stool, uh, so to speak, much more seriously. Uh, what's your read on that inside the organization? Yeah, I think it's had a huge effect. I think even even on me, like, you know, a year ago, we were talking about, you know, maybe can we, you know, can we win a city council seat? We're um, excited when we get um, 35% in the city council race, which was an amazing victory at that time. And I remember even thinking myself, like, I voted yes on the CLC, of course, to endorse Ocasio-Cortez for many reasons, one of which is that I think if a branch votes overwhelmingly for something, you know, you have to take that into account. But also I thought she was a great candidate. But even then, when I voted on that, I was, you know, I will admit freely that I was, I believe the conventional wisdom that this was kind of a hopeless race and that a congressional district is just too big for us to handle, you know, all the things that I was hearing, but I thought, you know, why don't we take a chance? We at least want to put our stamp on this. And I think that that sort of changes the calculation to, I think a lot of times what happens in our organization is we sometimes underestimate our capacity, which I don't know if that's (laughs) probably might be an unpopular thing to say, but I keep being surprised at how much we're able to do that we previously didn't think we were able to do, if that makes any sense. So when it came to the debates on the governor's race, I think with anything, we don't know what we are capable of until we try. And so I think that's that I think Ocasio's victory sort of opened the door to people being able to to expand the situations in which we're going to engage electorally. I agree that one of the things that we saw is the way that having campaigns with clear paths to victory and a clear ask of the people we're speaking to helps to build capacity a lot. And um, I think it changed how we think of what is possible. And I think it changed how people think about what non-DSA members or non-self-identified socialists, how they feel about the kinds of policies we want to promote. So I have, like I said, the special uh, privilege of being a constituent. And I'm also deeply like connected as a result of having small children with some of these newer voters in the district. So like mostly educated, sometimes very diverse. So certainly not just white people, but relatively newly arrived um, people living in this community. Um, most of them who have small children or, you know, uh, school age children. And being able to talk to them, a lot of them, they don't spend all their time talking about socialist politics, but they really liked Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's candidacy. They liked her platforms. They were, you know, really motivated to vote for her. And, you know, I get to see similar things happening right now around Cynthia Nixon. So, you know, being able to have conversations with my non-political mom friends and uh, dad friends was really significant in seeing like, wow, the kind of work we do isn't just a fringe thing. It's not you know, a minority thing, but a lot of people actually agree with it. 
right? I think we're all having this experience where I was at the bar this weekend, you know, I was traveling and I found myself at the bar this weekend and a bunch of normies were talking about democratic socialism behind me. <laughs> um, and I sort of went, I sort of started to turn around and, and sort of say, you know, comrades. And then I sort of realized like, oh, no, 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 these are just normal people. They would not they have any idea, you know, what I'm talking about here. And it, moreover, they may, they may or may not want to embrace me on that on that basis. But the point is, it's put it on the radar screen of a lot of people. And I, I agree. It's, it's, it's really exciting. And I think we're, we're just now wrapping our heads around it. It's going to come along, I think, with a set of pitfalls that we need to be weary of and be prepared for. But that's precisely why we need to have these kinds of uh, conversations, uh, the one that we're having right now, um, and intervene in these debates. So before we get started on the uh, Cynthia Nixon endorsement, Let's take a step back because one of the success stories thus far, I would say, and one of the really uh, the real sp- uh, spark and sparks and shoots, I would say, of NYC DSA right now is Julia Salazar. I mean, what an impressive candidate she is. She's running for New York State Senate. Um, another pitch for Dan Denver's great uh, The Dig podcast. Uh, Julia has been on there along along with Cynthia and other candidates talking about her race and what what it's important to her. People should listen to that. Tell us a little bit about Julia's campaign. I mean, she is much more embedded in uh, New York City DSA. Uh, she's kind of a homegrown candidate, so to speak. But she has played a pretty important role, I would say, in the Cynthia Nixon endorsement because they have independently uh, endorsed one another. And they've run and campaigned uh, side by side and kind of sort of formed a slate, uh, a would-be slate to produce a certain kind of policies uh, should they both be elected into the state legislature. So tell us a little bit about Julia's campaign, how, how that sort of came up and, and what the significance is uh, for the electoral strategy there. Well, I think that Julia's campaign is a whole, on a whole other level than even Cynthia's or Alexandria's in that, like you said, she's a, she's a longtime member and she is, she's running on the most explicitly socialist platform. So the idea of her being in the legislature next year is, you know, beyond um, anyone's wildest dreams. I mean, and it looks like not to be overconfident, but I think she's going to win. And I think that the thing that's been happening that I've noticed around like my liberal friends in liberal politics around the city is that they're just realizing all of a sudden that this organization and this movement that they kind of were like, huh, what is that? A year ago, they're like, oh, we really have to take this seriously and they have to engage with it and that it's not just something that they can blow off. So I think Julia's campaign is incredibly powerful. And I think, and I think her alliance with Cynthia also, I mean, we can get more into that when we talk about that, but I think it was very important to the, um, to the endorsement. So Michael and I actually met because of some of the other electoral work we do here in New York state. And specifically, I'm sure you've heard about this, but everything good dies in the New York State Senate. Right. (laughs) So um, one of the things that Michael and I have both worked on is fighting the IDC, which is the Independent Democratic Conference, which is just a group of New York State Democratic senators who claim to be Democrats, but they basically conference with the Republicans. And um, so in addition to AOC's victory – there's already been this grassroots movement to pressure IDC members and then to support their challengers. So we already have a lot of awareness that there's crappy state senators and that these young, energetic, grassroots challengers are worth supporting. So there's about, there's, oh, there are, there are eight IDC members. They all face challengers. 
Some of them have uh, more momentum and uh, success in their campaigns than others. Um, and I, uh, one of the things I've done is I helped to create a multi-member political campaign committee that raised over $100,000 in the past six months to support these candidates. So that, and that's all through like email campaigns and through in-person events. Um, and that momentum has also helped Julia. Like I've had, so I helped run the Facebook page and all these people who are not DSA members are like, are you guys going to, what are you doing for Julia Salazar? I really like Julia Salazar. So it's sort of this really interesting confluence of like grassroots moments in which liberals, progressives, and, you know, many DSA members are really focused on the IDC. And AOC's victory has put DSA and Democratic Socialists and these young Latina candidates on the political map. And that Julia Salazar's campaign has really been able to benefit from these two moments. So in the days, the week following Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory, she was able to raise more money than she had the previous, like, part of that reporting quarter, a reporting session of state fundraising. And same thing with a bunch of the other IDC challengers. And I'm on a number of their email lists, so I was able to see the emails that they were like, okay, none of them endorsed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because they all feared political suicide. Mm-hmm. But um, they all said, look what happened. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez took down the, the King of Queens, and we see now that the, you know, the vibrant, young, progressive grassroots challengers, that they're the future. And then you saw all these power players in New York City politics all of a sudden start aligning themselves with Cynthia Nixon or with these IDC challengers and with Julia Salazar. So it's almost like the floodgates opened. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory didn't just sort of change how we think about um, what's possible, but it also really changed how a lot of the power players, a lot of people, the key endorsements, those who really supported Julia in their hearts, but were fearful of the, the public repercussions, were able to be bold. So I feel like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez taught the political class to be bold and not to be so scared. And, you know, and that's amazing. Yeah, I think, I mean, like in New York politics for, you know, this year is sort of a this year is like a political, I think Sia Weaver was saying this, you know, that this year is a moment that comes out long politically, like once every couple generations or something in that New York politics is breaking open in a way that it just hasn't in my lifetime. There's, you know, wherever you live in New York city, generally you, when a vacancy opens up for your state Senate seat, uh, state Senate, state Senator or your um, assembly person, you kind of know who it's going to be. Like, it's just, it's that person's chief of staff. Everyone endorses them. They get the endorsement of everyone. Someone runs against them in the primary. They call them a crank and the person wins. And then that's just the end of it. And like 12 people vote, but this, and (laughs) you know, and they all, and they all keep up this, you know, and it's all sort of all planned out. It's like the Democrats are going to control the assembly. The Republicans are going to control the Senate. It doesn't matter what the people think. That's just been decided. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. Right. And this year, it's so exciting because on multiple levels, on the, you know, liberal progressive level, on the socialist, in the socialist world, in different places, the, the challenge to this is so broad. It's happening in so many districts. And I think, um, knock on wood, but I think we're going to see, you know, a fundamentally, I hope New York politics will not be the same again after this year. Right. And needless to say, it's, this has become, it's somewhat contagious. This boldness that Susan, you just spoke to and Michael uh, elaborated on is, uh, is, is highly contagious. Uh, We're seeing this in places as far flung as Michigan, where Abdul Al-Sayed, young guy, 33 years old, is, uh, you know, uh, 
very quickly gaining on uh, the front runner and perhaps has become the front runner himself for the Democratic nomination for uh, the, the governor's uh, race there. And it's happening all across the Midwest, even uh, in far flung places. There's just kind of like a, to, <laughs> to risk a uh, kind of managerial uh, uh, buzzword. There's a kind of synerg- synergistic effect that's taking place here, right? There's a critical mass effect. Um, and I think that, that, that we need to look in this, look at the strategy as a kind of nonlinear kind of, kind of, uh, development where there will be these leaps that, that happen, right. That completely change the terrain that we're operating on. And that's one way of looking at it somewhat Pollyannishly perhaps, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think it's exciting. I agree 100%. Let's talk about the actual endorsement process. Michael, it's my understanding that mm-hmm. you were on the ground floor of this. Uh, you and a couple other members were responsible for initiating uh, this process. And then, of course, Susan, you wrote a very influential medium piece uh, that you published there prior to the vote. I think that, that had a lot of really great, um, had a, a much more grounded assessment of what it would mean to oust Cuomo. Uh, in the state of New York. So why don't you, Mike, Michael, why don't you start by telling us uh, exactly how this project got off the ground? Well, it was slow because initially, I think even if you talk to, I mean, if you look back at my Facebook comments in April, I wasn't even thinking this was a possibility. I was like, yeah, you know, we should maybe put out a let's not endorse Cuomo thing because it just didn't seem like there was the support for it. And um, I'm a huge supporter of Cynthia personally, but I just looked at DSA and, you know, people were, did not seem, it didn't seem that there was a lot of enthusiasm for it, which, you know, I, I had wished that there was at the time, but, but I was like, that seems like the way things are going. So cool. And then as time went on, I kept seeing more and more people, you know, asking the question, like, why aren't we doing this? And I think it was, I can't remember if it was, I think it was right after and it was actually right before Ocasio's victory when Cynthia came out with the, um, when she said that she wanted to abolish ICE and she called the ICE a terrorist organization. And Daniel Lagos put up a Facebook post and member discussion where she said, um, you know, I don't think that I don't think DSA can afford to sit this one out. So Danya Ritellis is a member of New York city DSA. What's her position and what was her role exactly? She is a, um, she's the steering committee representative from the central Brooklyn branch, which is our largest branch. And um, I saw that and I was like, Whoa. And then I saw people commenting and obviously there was like a lot of like people, you know, as happens in a DSA comment thread, there was a lot of back and forth. But some people that I didn't think would have been in favor were saying like, yeah, I think we need to do this. So then I contacted Danya and Susan and some people and we started talking about what this would look like. The whole time this was happening, I was still thinking like, this is a huge long shot. And I was continually surprised by like, just how much support there was. And also, I think, especially like Danya and some of us contributed to it as well, wrote a, um, wrote a piece on Medium that sort of laid out what an endorsement would look like. Because one of the main concerns that people had was they didn't want to take resources away from Julia's campaign. And I completely agree with that. And I, you know, I think that was a valid concern. So we put out like a, um, a sort of a proposal for how it would look. And we just started seeing people's, you know, a lot of people's minds change about it. And, um, 
so yeah, it was really exciting to watch the momentum build for something that you didn't think was that there was much momentum for. It became a um, a debate of dueling medium pieces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that definitely did. I think that's a great thing. I mean, this was, uh, I think, uh, illustrates the way that democratic debate inside of an organization should take place, right? People articulating carefully and patiently, sometimes more carefully and sometimes more patiently than others, but I digress, uh, their positions. Uh, you know, th- people get, get heated on both sides. You know, people are very passionate about uh, these politics, which is what makes, I think, you know, organization – so great in many senses. Uh, so what, 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 was your, what was your intervention there, Susan? And what, what kind of transformation inside the organization did you witness when people became far more amenable uh, to thinking about uh, endorsing Nixon? So I actually wrote two medium pieces, which is a sentence I never thought I would say on a broadcast, but that's, that's okay. Um, a proudly published medium. By, by medium. I don't know if you've heard of it. So they have a very strict editorial board over there at me. Yeah. yeah. They actually make you pay fun to read more than a couple articles a month. You wrote two? Yeah. The first one I wrote was like a deeply personal one. <laughs> okay. And it talked about why I, as a DSA member and, uh, you know, someone who worked on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez campaign and, you know, a mother of two children, one of whom will be soon starting public school at kindergarten in the fall, uh, felt that we were misunderstanding the amount of solidarity and racial and class solidarity that Cynthia Nixon has demonstrated over the, her decades of being an activist yeah. in the public education system, because that's one area where DSA NYC does not have much of a presence, despite the fact we have a lot of teachers in our, in our membership. We're not on the ground fighting for educational equality or fighting for desegregation, which is kind of a shame because that's one of those areas where we'd be able to make a lot of these cross uh, coalitional diverse uh, connections that we really need in order to be effective yeah. in New York City. Anyone who is a parent or who knows a parent in New York City will know that this is right. just I mean this is one of the most uh, maddening and frustrating experiences that, that, that around and it would be really great. Yeah, you're right. Just to, just to emphasize that for folks who may not understand uh, the seriousness of that issue there. And um, I talked about how one of the lines that people liked in my that medium piece was I said how you know, most middle-class New Yorkers, including people of color, they prefer to send their children to either charter schools or to gifted and talented programs because in their mind, it's a deeply personal decision, not a, not a uh, decision that has political and social implications. And um, there are GSA members who are in other organizations that fight for desegregation, but it's not at the forefront of our citywide campaigns. And um, those folks encourage people on an individual level, choose your neighborhood school and here's why. And a lot of people don't like that. They feel guilty. They push back. And I don't blame individual parents who make choices for their children because ours is a system that doesn't you know, provide a lot of good options when it comes to education. But I do think that we all should be fighting for greater equality, better funding, and a greater diversity of our public schools for everybody, right? It benefits students across socioeconomic, uh, racial, ethnic, linguistic categories. And so uh, I spoke about that. And I remember somebody wrote, it is really deeply personal. I had a picture of myself getting arrested like uh, for fighting for CUNY funding and uh, another picture of Cynthia Nixon getting arrested fighting for funding at her child's public school while she was in Sex in the City. Um, and she doesn't get a lot of attention, not nearly as much attention as she should for being someone who could have just said, I'm sending my kid to Spence. Yeah. Or I'm sending my kid to, you know, another elite 
actors or celebrities type of school, but instead she sent her kid to the local public school, saw what was happening there under the Bloomberg administration, seeing the systematic underfunding and became involved in these advocacy groups that sued the state to get more equitable funding for the children of New York City. And she didn't just care about her child or her children. She cared about everyone's children. And, and to me, that was, I think that she revealed this in sort of the DSA meeting she came to, but we don't think about just how significant that is and how that is a very basic socialist idea that, you know, solidarity is about other people's problems being your problem and that you fight for people, even when you are a millionaire. Absolutely. So this is a good transition, actually, because I think a lot of the concerns, and I've heard this from people with whom I otherwise agree with in far-flung places across the country, and their criticism of Cynthia Nixon sort of maps on to the kind of hit pieces that are circulating about her right now. Um, that she's opportunistic. One argument that comes from the left is that, you know, she only uh, sort of claimed to be a, a democratic socialist after she saw the Ocasio wave and sort of wanted to opportunistically latch onto that. That's one of the the debates. And I'll go ahead and throw this in here as well. We can sort of have it all up for grabs. But, you know, last week, uh, what prompted me to contact Michael and, and, and then you, Susan, to, to come on here and sort of sort of, uh, I started to say, uh, clear the record or uh, set the record straight. But, uh, you know, it, I'll, I'll say I wanted to invite you on to give your side of the story because I felt like it was very underrepresented in the online spaces. The New York Times profile of Cynthia Nixon sort of uh, threw a gotcha question at her, I believe, when she was asked she was asked why she ran. And you guys can clarify this uh, if you know more about it than I do. Right. Because, again, I'm only relying on the news stories, which are incredibly limited. And she was quoted very selectively and out of context, out of context, uh, I would say. As saying, uh, quote, let me put it this way. If Mayor Bloomberg was our governor, I would not be running. And the New York Post ran (laughs) with that. The New York Post uh, put up a a piece uh, very soon after titled Cynthia Nixon shocks progressives with Bloomberg praise Uh, that came out on July 30th. And, uh, you know, it was uh, sort of. It was a hit piece by all, you know, intents and purposes. Uh, right. And, you know, it had a couple of uh, statements from the at the bottom from her spokeswoman, Lauren Hitt, who says, uh, you know, Cynthia was arrested protesting Bloomberg and worked very hard to ensure his chosen successor was not elected as mayor. If he were governor, of course, she'd be fighting against him. And of course, that's buried at the bottom of the article. Uh, typical New York Post fashion. So there, there are a number of uh, sort of things up, up, up for grabs there. You know, there are criticisms coming from the left saying that she's not a real socialist, that she's sort of faking it, sort of opportunistically latching onto this wave. There are criticisms from the right and the center uh, saying that, uh, you know, she praises Bloomberg in this really weird gotcha moment. What, what do you make of that, Michael? What's, what's your assessment of all this? Well, the, I mean, the thing about Bloomberg is really ridiculous. She you know, she did get arrested protesting him. She spent like her entire activist time opposing charter schools and opposing his education policies and then campaigning to make sure Christine Quinn did not become mayor. And I think that what she was referring to was basically that no one else is running against Cuomo. It's really, people keep asking like, why do we have to have this millionaire running against Cuomo? It's like, it's really difficult to find somebody with good politics who has the ability to withstand six months of nonstop attacks by the most powerful person in New York State. Yeah, so spell that out for people. Uh, Cuomo has uh, just a death grip on New York State politics. 
and in the kind of gravy trains that derive therein. He's attacked his opponent's businesses. He's attacked his opponent's family's businesses yeah. and, and their livelihoods. He's tried to get people fired. And I don't think, and for all, you know, Bloomberg, well, it was a nightmare, but I don't think he has that exact reputation. I think that there probably would have been another candidate to the left of him running. I think that Cynthia stepped up in this moment to do this because there was a lot of organizations that really needed and and a lot of people that wanted an opponent to Cuomo and a candidate was desperately needed in this moment and she was willing to do it. It's not like there's, you know, like the charges of opportunism always seem really strange to me because it's not like it's like a great, like super fun thing I would imagine (laughs) to be like in this position for all this time when you could just be doing you know, um, different things with Nights your life. on the Spanish and, Riviera. Like, I don't know anything, right. fucking anything you know, else. Right. And it's like, this. <laughs> and so, I mean, I think that she's demonstrated a commitment to these values like over and over again. And, you know, so I understand people at first blush think like, Oh, movie star or whatever, but that's not my experience at all of her. And I think it's also that what I kept thinking about in terms of us endorsing too, is just like you looked at all these other organizations like the working families party, New York communities for change and make the road that were literally targeted by Cuomo for destruction. And these are organizations that are mostly people of color that are fighting on immigration issues that are fighting for like people who are just terrorized by their landlords. And I really wanted us to stand with them. You know, they might not be the perfect socialists and Cynthia might be new to calling herself a socialist, but I know that these have always been her values. She's always been appalled by inequality and appalled by the way people are treated in our system. I think that a lot of times people come to, you know, understanding that they're a socialist by realizing that they already have been one and then seeing that the their values comport with that. And so, you know, and again, coming out and saying you're a socialist isn't always necessarily there's upsides and downsides. So I think that it was odd to me that you had people getting mad at her for not saying she was a socialist and then getting mad at her for saying she was a socialist or a democratic socialist. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So let's talk about the notion of endorsement. One of the, the most difficult aspects of this debate that I feel uh, has been underrepresented in, in, in our discussions across the country on this is that um, you know, a lot of people that I with whom I otherwise disagree, uh, or sorry, with other people with whom I otherwise agree with, you know, like uh, almost ninety nine point nine percent have disagreed me, with me on this particular topic, and it's become evident that that's it's not because we disagree on the substantive issues; it's because we're talking about different, we're talking past one another, because we're talking about different notions of what an endorsement means, right? And, you know, some people have spoken of really, I think, Susan, I think your second medium piece spoke to this a little bit. So I'd love for you to chime mm-hmm. in on this. Uh, but, you know, endorsement doesn't necessarily have to be an endorsement of one's socialist authenticity, you know, the authenticity of their socialist bona fides or whatever or what have you. An endorsement can simply just say that this person, uh, you know, is is going to push the policies that we have prioritized democratically as a national organization. 
and and we want to help this person get elected and and hold them accountable in terms of doing that, right? I mean, Medicare for all is the, the top policy priority that we've put forward. Uh, educational access, all these other types of things that that Nixon has uh, fought for and championed for many years. Uh, so, Susan, tell us a little bit about you know your version of what endorsement means here, and clarify that for folks so that at least if we disagree. Uh, we're disagreeing on the same terms rather than talking past one another. Um, I guess for me, somebody who didn't until basically a couple years ago ever worry about electoral politics. I, I only did things like trade union activism, you know, movement building, uh, everything I could except politics, uh, electoral politics. I now see why it's not a good decision to ignore it. And it's because you can go on strike and you can mobilize people, but then at the end of the day, like the teachers in Oklahoma and West Virginia found, even all that mobilizing wasn't effective if the state ledge couldn't approve a contract that would meet their needs. And the things that a lot of those teachers went on strike for, they didn't get. And so what did those teachers do? And that's one of the things that one of the anti endorsement medium posts talked about was, oh, we don't need to have elected officials on our side. We can go on strike like the teachers in Oklahoma and West Virginia. 150 of those teachers are running for office right now. So rather than saying, because of their mobilizing, I'm radicalized and I'm too good for electoral politics, what they realized was that we need to be the ones in charge or have the relationships with those in charge because mobilizing and striking is great, but it's just one of the many tools we have to build what we want, right? So whether that's socialism or, you know, a better funded education system, right? We all, we may have different priorities. They realized that they had to do these things. So for me, the best reason to endorse Cynthia Nixon was that she was a candidate who would work with someone like Julia Salazar to promote the kinds of policies, short-term minimalist socialist policies we'd love to see passed here in New York State. And quite frankly, if we pass them, something like universal rent control or um, New York's Health Act, which would be Medicare for All in New York State, which the Rand Corporation recently said was going to be economically sustainable. <laughs> Those good um, libertarians then, over at the Mercatus Center, you know, my boys, exactly. my main men. Um, <laughs> then that in itself would be a political revolution, right? Because we haven't had a state pass and then implement something like Medicare for All. In the United States, we've gotten close, like you know, Vermont passed in 2014, and then they realized, oops, they're the 49th smallest economy in the U.S. and didn't have the resources for that. We're the third largest economy in the U.S. statewide, and we don't have insurance companies based in New York State, so we're not going to face the same kinds of economic problems. So there's a lot of reasons why New York should be the first state to do that, uh, in addition to the fact that, you know, we need health insurance, right? And we all need access to health care, regardless of whether or not we have jobs or the market has decided that we're worth having that. And so to be able to take this huge step towards decommodifying something that's so fundamental to people's lives um, and also make it possible for things like nonprofit organizations to hire people or, you know, small universities or any other organization that's not gigantic is an important political step. And I think that my comrades in DSA who were against this endorsement, they were thinking more about what are we doing in terms of representing DSA to the broader public? Like, what is, what is DSA supposed to look like? So I think that we share the same outcomes, but we had some different ideas about how to go up that mountain. And 
I'm glad that we were able to make arguments that resonated with the vast majority of the DSA members who participated in the straw poll, um, as well as in the in the in-person branch meetings. But these legislative goals are really significant. And, you know, we want Julia, when she goes to Albany, to succeed in passing these laws that she's told her constituents in her senatorial district that she's going to make happen, right? We don't want Julia to be somebody who talks about things that are great, but then isn't able to do so because, you know, Albany sucks. And we all know, those of us who are state politics nerds, we know Albany sucks. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a real danger, right? Is you need to have the the cast of characters in place so that your people can be successful. Um, you know, a lot of people will know that I interviewed DSA member Lee Carter and Virginia State Legislator on Dead Pundit Society uh, way before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to say that actually then gave me the uh, the idea that uh, Casio would be successful. It didn't. I still thought she would lose, uh, just like everybody else. But uh, anyway, I was I've been on this train for a while, but to see now that to see uh, Delegate Carter struggle in office the way that he has, like uh, you know, obviously so in a state like Virginia, uh, it shows us that we need to have a much more robust cast of characters around our homegrown legislators uh, so they can be successful. So we have a lot of balls in the air. We're talking about the nature of the Democratic Party. You know, we're talking about uh, mm-hmm. why electoral politics, how does it work in our larger strategy in this movement for socialism? Because um, we are at, at heart, you know, critics, uh, profound critics of capitalism. We see it as the, the source of inequality and oppression and exploitation and suffering in society. And then there's another question. I think we can sort of talk about all of these at once because you can't talk about one without talking about all of it. This final question that I want us to be preoccupied with during the very last part of the show here is this question of accountability. Because I think this is really one thing that has rightly been on the minds of people uh, across the left and particularly inside the organization. But it's one thing that I think is really under-theorized. This notion of accountability, how do we hold our candidates accountable? Moreover, what does it mean to have an organization or a political party even demand accountability from a politician, an elected politician, knowing that uh, it's actually their constituents to whom they are accountable, not necessarily the party? Right. Because we have representative democracy. Um, it's, it's odd to believe that a socialist in California would should feel like Ocasio-Cortez should be accountable to him uh, when Ocasio-Cortez has tens of thousands of actual constituents that she represents. So I, I put a lot out there. Uh, you're both very smart people. You can handle it. So uh, let's tackle this thing uh, for, for the last part of the show. So um, as. Uh Right, sorry, I'm I'm being uh, summoned. Oh, that's a very that, yeah, that's a very nice necklace. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know what? Fuck it. I should leave this in because that's motherhood. Damn it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My son just came back from uh, summer camp and he's being very quiet and good. Now he's going to go play. This is what You're going to go play dominoes. Yeah, social reproduction is a key part of you know uh, labor. Um, so I'm actually a constituent of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and so I've paid attention to these discussions about accountability with a special amount of interest. I don't necessarily agree with all of the concerns that people have have expressed. So I understand people are very upset because in an interview, she didn't have a, a strong of an anti-Israel stance. Um, and as someone who supports BDS personally, I was also, you know, hoping that she was 
going to be a little bit bolder. But at the same time, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been working probably 20 to 18 hour days since she got elected, which like the rest of us, she didn't really think about. Like, what am I going to do after I got elected? And she's not somebody who's used to being on the national media circuit. And so I've been trying to approach Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez post-victory as, you know, with a bit of compassion, like understanding she might flub something up. Um, but a lot of people are very quick to dismiss and say, oh, this is why we should never support Democrats. You can see she's pivoting to the right. And I, I've just been trying to listen and to engage with these conversations. And I have to admit that I do feel a bit defensive of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because she's being attacked by the right for being a socialist and, you know, she's being attacked by Fox News. But she wants to have conversations with us about how to talk about Israel and Palestine. She's here to listen to us. And Crowley was like literally our enemy. Like I, as, as somebody who like marched on his villain, office, uh, you know. right? I marched on his office in the summer of 2014. By the way, with ISO folks who also live in the district, because he is like very close to APAC and has no sympathy for the human rights of of Palestinians. He would never call it an occupation. And so, as somebody who is a constituent and has felt so frustrated about the way Crowley would never respond to his constituents' concerns about the horrific humanitarian disasters happening in Gaza and Palestine, I'm just excited to have somebody elected who is willing to take a conversation uh, with people from the anti-war uh, working group who is endorsed by Muslims for Progress. So I know she is having conversations with uh, those folks about how to talk about this. And... Um, you know, we're going to continue to work with her and to engage like the condemnation, the call out. I don't see what this does other than make people feel good about their positions because it's not making other people agree with them. And it's not necessarily like it made it's going to make her feel really bad. And then it also will make her other people who might want to work with DSA scared. Right. So we have to think about this in the long term. And I do believe that she is uh, evolving on that position and that other candidates are as well. But if all we're doing is taking a zero tolerance stance, like you didn't have my perfect Marxist line on Israel and Palestine, and therefore you're an enemy and I will denounce you. I don't see how that's necessarily accountability either. Right, right. As a big proponent of BDS myself, I, I, I just I just want to get that out there because isn't it silly that we have to do this, right? Isn't it silly that we have to be performative and sort of illustrate our socialist bona fides? You know, well, yes, I, I too am a BDS proponent, but uh, there's a really great piece that came out on Mondo Weiss by uh, Jamie Stern Wiener. It's called To Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Critics. This is no time for sloganeering. And it's a very long and careful piece that actually draws out that like, yes, although uh, cosign everything you just said about the the very extreme likelihood that uh, Cortez is, Ocasio is going to and already has evolved on, on how she talks about this issue. Because let's be honest, I have no doubt that Ocasio-Cortez has the right view on Israeli settler colonialism, for God's sakes. I think that where, where she struggles is how to communicate certain kind of policies and, and, and horizons and things like that effectively to mainstream media outlets who don't, you know, share her same commitments to sort of like, you know, ending oppression and, and inequality and injustice and that sort of thing. But this piece is really great. I'll link to it in the show notes. Michael, what'd you have on that? Well, I also think like we have to keep in perspective the situation in New York politics, like in New York politics, no matter how progressive someone is, mm, right. 99% of politicians take the Likud line on the Israeli-Palestinian situation. It's like, they're so far to the right. 
And it is considered such a huge political risk to say anything. Half of like Israeli opposition politicians in Israel would be called anti-Semitic in New York politics. And so to have a candidate like Ocasio-Cortez coming out and calling what happened in Gaza a massacre is a huge victory. And even if she doesn't say the perfect thing all the time, I mean, to me, I look at this as like, you know, with all these issues with on the long-term socialist project and everything is like, not all these candidates are going to be perfect all the time, but we want to be changing the terms of discussion in the country on all these issues, whether it's in terms of like healthcare as a human right or on these foreign policy issues. And so even going back to Cynthia Nixon, when, um, you know, a year and a half ago or a year ago, I guess, when we passed on the CLC universal rent control as our citywide priority, I thought, well, that's great that we're doing that, but no politician's ever going to run on hmm. that. <laughs> and now it's, it's in her platform. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that, you know, I'm not saying that like Ocasio-Cortez or Cynthia are like, you know, they're not as far left maybe as the three of us, but they're definitely our allies and they're opening the door to, um, to more people coming in. And I think, I think it's like, like you talked about before, like whether we see endorsements as a full stamp of that, this is the perfect person, or as we can see them as, as their campaign as an, as an ally of, of our long-term you know, it helps our long-term goals. I mean, one of the things I noticed when there was a lot of uh, online discussion of a potential Nixon endorsement was there's a lot of like, oh, here's this personal attack, here's that personal attack. And I said, you know, I don't think I ever want to run as a DSA candidate. This is what's going to happen. Because, I mean, I'm a DSA member and people have said to me, you know, maybe you should run for office someday. And I've thought about it, maybe when my children are less small. But like, if that's what I'm going to go through, and these are people that I know, then I mean, who, it, it just seems unfair. And I've done all sorts of stupid things, you know, before the age of, <laughs> of, of social media, thank goodness. But, you know, I've said stupid things. I've supported, you know, I actually interned for a Republican congressman when I was 16 years old. I lived in suburbs of Chicago and that's what you have around you. But, you know, and I've also, I also thought stupid things and said stupid things. So like, and I'll, maybe I'll look back on some of the things I'm saying today and be like, oh, how could I think that 10 years from now? But that's good. Like we're all evolving and changing. And people said, oh, you know, Cynthia Nixon, she uh, supported Hillary Clinton in the primary. And to me, the response is, it's good that she yeah. now is to the left of Bernie, right? If right. Cynthia Nixon- And she somebody, is to the left of Bernie. Yeah, I think that needs to be said probably. Uh, in, in <laughs> you know. If somebody like Cynthia Nixon who said that I'm a Hillary person in 2016 can say like 26, 27 months later that she, you know, is critical of capitalism, that she's a democratic socialist, then we're winning. We're winning. And like- Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And the fact that my normie mom friends who- don't think about politics all the time like I do. They don't just talk about uh, Trotsky with their <laughs> husbands like I do. You know, that they're like, I'm so excited about Cynthia Nixon. I'm so excited about Julia Salazar. I'm so excited about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They're going to get a babysitter to go to the Cynthia Nixon, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez fundraiser we're having here in Jackson Heights. Like, I'm just like, that's amazing because I've known some of these folks for a while and I just it's not that I didn't think this was possible. I just didn't see it happening. So we're all evolving. We're learning. We're growing. And if if I 
would like to give the benefit of the doubt to my comrades who I might disagree with today and that they're going to be far more sophisticated in a few years, just like I will, then we have to sort of, you know, also give that benefit of the doubt to people who might be running for office as well. And also just remember people are human and just because they're public figures, if it feels good to call out, is that necessarily the right strategy in the long term? Like I want, one of the things I really feared was that nobody who wanted to have a political career would want to talk to DSA again about an endorsement because of the way that this all went down. And like, then what would that, where would that leave us? And maybe some of the people who are very critical and skeptical of electoral politics would be really happy. But then like people who are not DSA endorsed have taken on universal rent control as policy platforms who are running for a state, state assembly and state senate this year because of the dominance of somebody like DSA. Right. That it's now just it's moved the Overton window, so to speak, to the point where if you want to call yourself progressive, you cannot in good faith enter the public sphere and not argue for rent control. It's a it's a right, mandatory exactly. minimum uh, platform, you know, that you have to take on. And it's because of our successes. I that think that's in, taken place. in in one discussion, I saw someone comment who actually I think was against the endorsement, but was upset at some of the tone of stuff. And he said, um, I don't know what it is about us, but why do we have to be a thousand times meaner to people who want to be our friends than we are to our actual enemies? (laughs) And, you know, because lost in this discussion a lot of times was, you know, just to reiterate, I think every single person who was opposed to this endorsement opposes Andrew Cuomo as much as Susan or I does and did not think of, in no way do they want to be like, was there a lot of 99% of them are going to vote for Cynthia Nixon in the primary. They just had a different strategic feeling about it. But I also think though that, you know, some of it got really um, just the assumptions of, of her and her intentions a lot of times were so negative at that aspect of it, which was a minority of people still it was, you know, that was upsetting. Yeah. Let's wrap up. I, I wanted to. I want to just insist on this uh, debate around accountability because that's just really where I think this thing rises and falls. I mean, it, it, I just I keep hearing it over and over again, and I really, I just, I would just personally insist. I think it's grossly under theorized this uh, this notion of accountability. I think we all agree that uh, when you uh, campaign for someone, when you give you a rubber stamp, whether it's authorizing and authenticating their socialist bona fides or whether it's just saying, hey, they have some policies that we would really benefit from. Either way, we would like some kind of accountability. And I think even that word in and of itself is just so abstract that it that it that it uh, it, it's not very useful sometimes. What do we mean by accountability? How do we get it? And what do you make of the kind of implicit claim that underlies this whole sort of uh, kerfuffle, which is that we don't actually have any kind of accountability structures that we could use if, say, Cynthia Nixon becomes a sort of uh, whack job neoliberal once she's in office, if she should become elected? Because I would suggest that we have a lot more power and we're, we're punching above our weight far more profoundly than, than people want to give us credit. But, but what's your take on that uh, being uh, on the ground in New York? I think it's always a risk. I mean, you never, you can't, there's no guarantees, you know, in, in a sense, like when you make an endorsement, you're making a leap of faith. And obviously 
I think this is a very special case, given the political circumstances in New York and given the candidate that we had at this time running on our platform. But you just, you can't ever, it's like, no one knows what's going to happen. I mean, sometimes the most accountability you have is to withhold your endorsement in the future or apply pressure in the ways that you can. But I don't know. I mean, Susan, do you have a better answer? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, well, so this is sort of like the earlier conversation we were having about like the importance of being bold. And I think fear of not knowing how to move forward isn't like a very convincing argument about moving forward. So we, we have different examples. So for example, I know that in Philadelphia, the DA, uh, Larry Krasner, he meets with sort of his, let's call them civil society supporters on a regular basis and talks about what are their concerns, what are his concerns, uh, ideas, uh, recommendations. So that it's sort of like, a regularized process of consultation. Um, and I think that that's a really good model. And like, you know, he's also done some things that people don't like. And having that relationship means that, that he can build on that and move forward and to, you know, maybe apologize or to change his views. Um, and people have talked about, are we going to do something like that with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? And the answer is, we don't really know yet because she still needs to win the general. And she's doing a lot of great work right now campaigning for other candidates because just like we don't want Julia to be the only person with her kinds of politics in Albany, I think that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sees the importance of creating a coalition of other like-minded people in Congress when she starts working there next year. So right now, we don't know what that looks like, but it hasn't been ruled out. Um, and certainly something that looks a bit like that would be great. So whether or not we want to have a meeting with her, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or if Cynthia Nixon gets elected, and talk about setting up that kind of structure, I think that that would be a good way to move forward. But, you know, we make the road by walking. No one's ever successfully instituted socialism in the United States before. And so we will take the tools we have and use them and learn from the choices we've made as we move forward. And um, that might mean that we don't really know exactly how we want accountability to look like on a statewide level. But that if we are so fortunate enough to have Cynthia Nixon get elected as governor, that we will have the conversations to figure out what we want that to look like. Um, and then, you know, not having that process ahead of time and then saying, therefore, we shouldn't endorse. It's not a convincing argument to me. But then again, you know, uh, you know, my parents came over here to this country without much ideas of what they were going to do. And, you know, they figured out a way to make it work. So, you know. Uh, I don't think that knowing exactly how you're going to get somewhere is as important as trying to figure out, you know, saying, oh, here's where we'd like to go. How would we like to get there? I think I stole that from a movie. Uh, <laughs> the, have you ever seen that movie? Burn? Sounds like something Miranda would have said on Sex in the City. <laughs> no, no, no. There's a, there's a movie called Burn that's done by the same guy, the Italian director who did um, Battle of Algiers. Okay. I'm not cool. I don't and, know directors. Uh, probably oh, a lot of listeners. Okay. Do, his name is, uh, no, I don't know his name because I'm not that cool. I, my <laughs> husband is like the film guy. But anyway, there's a character who says, it's better to know where you want to go than how you will get there. And that that's how I feel as well about you know, the things that we're doing in DSA. Not that we exactly know how, where we're trying to go either, but we have some, we're all kind of facing the same direction. I raised this more heady, theoretical, dusty point uh, with my guest last week, Ed Rooksby, but I, I liked it and he did, so I'm going to keep it. But it's like, there's a certain kind of like leap of faith that is required in our, our strategy of non-reformist reforms, because the entire point is that you take up these, you take up these political projects 
uh, so that you can produce the conditions that will then empower you uh, on a higher level the next time around. And so by, by, by necessity, without having the capacities to carry out the project in advance, you won't know what you will have been capable of in the future. Right. Um, I don't know. Past the doobie. Right. We're kind of getting deep now. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but, but it's, it's just a fun what, what you've sort of spelled out there, I think, is something that we really need to sort of um, embrace. I think this uncertainty, this radical uncertainty uh, that's, that's sort of entailed in our project. So final question, uh, I would be I would be uh, assailed from all sides if I didn't uh, sort of address this issue. Left Voice is a news outlet that none of you need to pay any attention to. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let's just say uh, they are a group of uh, self-styled revolutionary socialists who sort of attack DSA as these kind of electoralists, and they're pushing for an agenda. Some of some of the people inside of the, the organization are a part of that. I would say maybe people who are affiliated with the Refoundation Caucus. Those kinds of folks inside the organization. It is a big tent. There's room for everyone. I would say, at least in some senses. But the, the people over at Left Voice have been highly critical of this endorsement, um, and not for the reasons that I'm necessarily sympathetic to. But I want to be sure that they're represented here in this show. So we'll finish here with a, a quote, and then we'll, we'll address the, we'll address the uh, accusation there. It reads, Nixon joins the ranks of other Democratic Party candidates endorsed by the DSA around the country, including four who just won Democratic Party primaries in Pennsylvania. Once again, the DSA has demonstrated that it is attempting to lead the new generation of socialists, disillusioned with the two-party system, back into one of the two most powerful capitalist and imperialist parties in the world, the Democratic Party, end quote. So there's this, you know, this, this, uh, I was going to say implicit, it's rather explicit accusation that DSA and these candidates are just sheepdogs for the Democratic Party to lead these radicalizing collectivities back into the hands of the neoliberals inside the party. Now, just from my view, that, that's not what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing uh, any of these people, these hundreds of thousands of people across the country who are identifying as democratic socialists. I'm not seeing them like running into the opening and loving arms of Nancy fucking Pelosi <laughs> uh, just to get that out there. Uh, but but what did the two of you, we can finish with this question. It's a big one. What is our orientation to the Democratic Party? The candidates that we are running and endorsing are running as Democrats. Uh, what does that mean in this moment? And, and how do you push back against uh, some of these criticisms? I think we're largely opposed to the, the Democratic Party in that, you know, I mean, the candidates we're running are all running against the power structure in the Democratic Party, and they're all running as insurgents. Again, it's always, it's a leap of faith. You just, you don't know. But I think it's a much, um, running in primaries right now is a much better route to power than on a third party line. And the other thing too is like, and I, I know it might, you know, I understand that the Democratic Party is, you know, it's, it's bad. It's a, you know, as an, or it's a huge behemoth and everything, but the Republican party, it's worse. <laughs> it's not, it's not a bad thing to admit that. I mean, even Noam Chomsky refers to the Republican party as the most dangerous organization in human history. And so, you know, I mean, at least from my perspective, you know, I want to elect socialists and everything like, but I also want to keep the most completely, the most dangerous people out of power if possible. Um, so I come to this from the perspective of someone who's done a lot of canvassing in my diverse 
community. And uh, I would go knock on people's doors and say, oh, by the way, I, I'm Susan. I'm volunteering with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign. Did you know that there's a primary election for Congress on June 26th? And my neighbors, you know, many working class immigrants of color would say to me, oh, yeah, Democrat, I only vote for Democrats. So, like, we have this problem in which I want there to be a robust workers' party that runs independently of the Democratic line as well. But my neighbors will not vote for anybody but Democrats. For whether it's ideological, personal, or emotional reasons, we're not at the point where we can get many people to vote off the Democratic line. Perhaps in some places that makes sense, but here in, you know, Queens, New York, that just elected Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that's not likely to happen anytime soon. So let's do like multiple paths up this mountain. Let's build the infrastructure for something more independent. But at the same time, realize that people are suffering. They're not getting access to healthcare. They're not getting access to education, to other basic needs fulfilled. And if we can elect democratic socialists, um, those who might just identify as left progressives who are willing to champion for our agenda, let's do that as well. And, uh, in an ideal world, we would be able, we would already have that infrastructure in place, or we would have something like proportional representation. So that way we wouldn't have to just choose the lesser of two evils. But, you know, I lived in New York. I've been living in New York for 10 years now, and I lived in Minnesota before. And in Minnesota, you just kind of show up, you register to vote. It's very chill. In New York, if you don't participate in the primary election, you don't have a say in who gets elected because the primary, uh, the primary election is where the main decision is. The general is just kind of like a rubber stamp. So recognizing that in New York State and in New York City, this is the circumstance we have right now, we can either wish it away or work within the system and outside of the system to try to encourage the changes we'd like to see in the short term, think about different things for the medium term, think about different things for the long term. You know, we can engage in base building, we can organize in our workplaces, we can organize tenants, right? So we can do all these different things, and that's the beauty of DSA. Nobody owes anybody their time. So if you don't like electoral work and you think the Democratic Party is like a graveyard, then nobody's forcing you to do any of these things. That's why I love DSA. That's why when I was recruited by socialist organizations across the left spectrum, I didn't want to join because I didn't want anyone telling me how to spend my time. And so, you know, we're a mass organization and we're, we want to not just be an organization of, I think, 45,000 people or 48,000 people. We want to be an organization of millions of people. Um, and we want for, uh, we can't ignore the fact that we get these bumps as a result of Bernie running for office or, you know, Trump getting inaugurating or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez winning. Um, the other thing too is that let's not be foolish about what it means to be an independent in New York, uh, in, in politics in, in the U.S. Bernie Sanders might be an independent from Vermont, but he's always caucus with the Democratic Party. So he's not just like a caucus of one doing things by himself and being effective. He is strategic as well in the choices he makes. So, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy uh, for those who are very much take a hard line against working with the Democratic Party. And I say to those comrades, keep doing what you're doing um, because you're building power in other ways. And we'll also build power in a, a series of different ways. And that, that's, that was the title of the, the Medium piece that it wasn't I who wrote it. It was just my account that posted it. It was more like many of us wrote it together because I certainly don't have all the expertise to write a piece like that. And I wish it had been written uh, more carefully, but we wrote it very quickly because we wanted to have a response to the medium piece um, that the those against the endorsement posted. That's a really important point that you make, Susan, about the you know the 
people who are opposed to working with the party that it's good that they're there and they're doing what they're doing. I also think sometimes like, uh, you know, you mentioned proportional representation and I think it's, you know, so many of these massive debates and like bitter debates that we have on the left, we wouldn't even have, I mean, if we had a different electoral system, we wouldn't even be having these debates. Mm -hmm. That's very true. That's very true. Well, I, I like the spirit, this attitude. Um, you know, I myself am a, am a huge proponent of, of heterodoxy. I think heterodoxy is absolutely essential to a democratic movement, either for socialism or just in general. Um, and, you know, a lot of people know that I make ar- arguments pretty stridently here on the Dead Punnett Society, but I always try to, you know, go peel back and say, like, I, I, I cherish heterodoxy because I'm constantly evolving on issues. And I think we all are. And the only way to do that is to have a multiplicity of opinions and perspectives sort of all go into the debate and we sort of all come out sort of transformed in that process. I think that the difficulty is that all too often we don't operate in a heterodox fashion. We sort of silo ourselves into our little, uh, um, our enclaves of preferred, you know, policies and, and projects and, and, and having these, having these conversations, it's so important in evolving and growing as a left uh, and certainly as an organization. So uh, Michael Cavadias and Susan Kang, thanks so much for joining me on the Dead Punnett Society. I've really enjoyed this. It's an honor to have you on here, and I hope that we can continue to have these debates in an open and comradely manner uh, in the future. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. And that concludes our interview with Susan Kang and Michael Cavadias. Thanks again to them for joining us. I really enjoyed that conversation. I think it uh, really clarified matters quite a bit. I think a lot of people will come away from that still in disagreement with respect to the Nixon endorsement. But nonetheless, I hope that there was some clarity reached therein. So as I mentioned, Amy will be joining us again for the B-side this week. If you're not a patron, you're going to miss it. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a member today. Patrons, look forward to that. We're going to be chopping up some of the key themes that were raised during that interview talking about accountability, authenticity, and the different kinds of endorsements and how we you know, might think about relating to them. So until then, that pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother...